Welcome to the Miracle Moon podcast. Miracle Moon is a resource for NICU parents, past, present and future, to share experiences and normalise thoughts and feelings in a safe environment. It's run by me, Frankie, a clinical psychologist, and Georgie, a fellow NICU mum. Each week we talk about themes and experiences relevant to NICU parents. We talk honestly and openly, so we ask you to access this podcast and our other resources in a way that feels right for you and where you're currently at on your NICU journey. Today we've got Emily and Lindsay from Sensory Babies um, over on Instagram. So Emily is um, a neonatal occupational therapist and she works over two neonatal units in London. And Lindsay uh, works for a children's charity called PACE, which is an early intervention service for children aged not three years. And she leads a team of occupational therapists and speech and language therapists. They're also the co-authors of Sensory Babies on Instagram, which is an education and learning platform for parents and professionals. So welcome, Lindsay and Emily. Welcome, ladies. Thank you very much for having us. <laughs> Wonderful. So where do you think it would be a good place to start? I, I don't know whether it would be a good place to tell us a little bit about what you do. So what you do as occupational therapists. So yeah, that's probably a great starting yeah. point. So, um, I work as an occupational therapist in a neonatal unit and I know we were just joking before going nobody has a clue what an OT is, an occupational therapist. It's one of those jobs that just um, surprises everybody. But if you think everything in life is an occupation, so if you want to learn how to drive a car, handwrite, go back to work, get dressed after any um, incident, you might see an occupational therapist to help you with that. So in the neonatal unit, our job is to support parenting occupations. So learning to take your baby out for skin to skin, learning how to do nappy changes, doing sensitive mouth cares. So we are the only allied health profession trained in mental health and physical health. So we're there for the development of the baby, but also the mental health and well-being of the parents. So it's, um, it's one of the best jobs in the world. Sounds <laughs> it. It's yeah. one of those jobs that no one knows anything about. But I tell you, once you've met an OT, you like them. <laughs> <laughs> so let me hand over to Lindsay because she works <laughs> outside the hospital. So give you an idea of what she does out there. So, yeah, so it's, um, well, as Emily says, it's about occupations of daily life, which is everything from being asleep to getting up in the morning, to eating, to dressing, um, to bathing, to getting, get, as adults, getting out to work, as children getting to school, um, being able to play is an occupation of childhood, um, we would consider. So all, really all of those things um, would be um, something that occupational therapists might get involved with. So in early intervention, so that's when the babies have left the neonatal unit or there are other babies who have developmental concerns, um, we're again very much interested in parenting, what you might consider parenting occupations. So things like um, dressing or um, eat, feeding with your baby or um, bathing your baby, um, playing with your baby, um, interacting with your baby to support their development. Um, and also, of course, being focused on the baby's developmental skills as well. So how are they at calming themselves regulating themselves or do they need a huge amount of help from parents to do that um, can they are they um, comfortable with being cuddled are they comfortable with feeding are they comfortable with going in the bath or actually is there or all those um, activities that cause anxiety and um, if you like a term we might use is hyper responsiveness so are oversensitive to the nappy changes, the the bathing, the um, the cuddling, those sort of things. Mm. So it's very much about supporting the parents to um, uh, understand where helping them, because obviously parents, you're experts in your own children. But what we've done is seen a, a load of children, <laughs> and so um, what we hope is that we sort of have some top tips, if you like, about what might help to settle your baby help you both to be calmer. Often parents are obviously quite anxious. They're worried about their baby's development. Um, they're worried about whether their babies are um, typically sleeping, typically doing any of those activities of daily life. And so a lot of it is also just 
helping to calm everybody down, baby and, and parents and um, support developmental milestones, I suppose. You've sold me. I think I want you to move in with me. <laughs> really interesting because, you know, we've been talking a lot about anxiety on Miracle Moon recently and I guess you know there's you know obviously the high anxiety can have an impact on on that relationship and it can have an impact on the child and things like that but I guess so we've been talking about the importance of self-care so about kind of regulating your own emotions um so that you can kind of regulate your child's and things like that but I think things like looking after yourself just kind of get swept away don't they I don't have time to look after myself because I need to look after my child but it's so important isn't it Frankie, that's so important what you what you say as well because um a lot of what we do in the neonatal unit is that it is all about co-regulation but it's also we have to think about the infant the family and the staff and yes. if the staff aren't well co-regulated or are coming like with a whole lot of stresses that comes straight off you into the environment and then the baby picks it up and that's not because anyone's bad people you know they've just they've got they've got stress and trauma that they've seen day in day out so that whole regulation piece for babies families and staff is just so vital yeah so do you do a lot of staff work as well so where I am I'm really we're really lucky we've got a full-time psychologist and so she does a lot we they do a lot of meditation and drop-in sessions for the staff as well and well-being sessions because they recognize that like you're seeing trauma day in day out and if you don't address it that a lot of ways you handle it is just by shutting off and then just doing two rather than doing with and when you see people just doing you know that 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 has all become a bit too much yeah completely completely there's so much to it isn't there within a neonatal unit i know i know it's it's really complex it really is yeah and And i think fix it quickly and we don't (laughs) as a parent on the neonatal unit as well you can sometimes forget that the nurses are people and they're still experiencing those emotions even though it's not their baby they're still seeing the trauma that you're all going through and it's sometimes easy to forget actually that's really hard for them as well but they're trying to support us through it and also obviously the baby is the main priority so yeah it's really interesting yeah I guess when you're in it you're not going um that nurse was really short with me I wonder whether she's okay and whether no. because she's not, no, really not at all. Like, going. She was yeah. Now. Yeah. yeah exactly yeah so and, and, and I think in a way, like as an OT, because your, your job isn't to keep that little person alive. It's mm-hmm. the, the medical team. Your job is to support the family and the development. And so we're looking at it in different ways. So I have to check myself every so often going like, whoa, why did they do? Why was that person a little bit short? And actually, it's, it is that whole co-regulation piece. Yeah, completely. It's like you need a group yes. of mindfulness <laughs> for every single person to be able to kind of calm down before you start. Yeah. So how has it been at the moment for you guys with COVID? Oh, my days. So <laughs> we, I think we have learned so much. Um, and I think in all honesty, the practices have changed from first time round. So first wave, where I was, everyone was frightened and terrified. And when people are frightened, the easiest thing for them to do is just to say stop. Um, And so we stopped daddies coming in and we had, so mums could come in 24 hours a day. And the theory behind that was because they were providing the breast milk Mm -hmm. and we had grown men crying outside in the corridor. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And the second wave, we said one parent, your choice, (laughs) 24 hours, but other units managed to have two parents 24 hours. And then some units said you can only come in for two hours a day and you book your slot which is just madness. And I think it comes more from the fact we were genuinely really, really frightened. And when you come from a place of fear, you don't make the best decisions at all. Mm -hmm. And luckily we've got BAPM's guidelines now and Bliss's guidelines that say parents are not visitors, they are part of the team and you're blooming well, let them in. But we didn't have that at the start. And it was, you know, it wasn't based on your infection control team. It was based on the neonatal teams and they, they, you know, everybody made a different decision. Yeah. And I think, well, when you start losing um, your nursing team to COVID or when they, it, then it just puts everyone's fear up beyond belief. Yeah. It's, it was tricky. I would love to, it's tricky. And I think, and then Lindsay, you can say for like, the, from, from going home, because that also presented a whole lot of issues in terms of therapists, you know, being allowed in the home and also, and I'll hand you over to Lindsay, she can explain in the community. 
Yeah, I think the um, the big impact has been, yeah, therapists not being able to see face-to-face -face, um, often. Um, we've, we've provided teletherapy um, to the families, but it's not quite the same, obviously. And um, families want reassurance, and there's something about being in the same room, isn't there, that it gives a different um, sense of reassurance. I think one thing that's really um, come home to us recently is obviously some for some families they've had their babies really sort of maybe this time last year um, or you know thereabouts and they've had most of this baby's life and their maternity leave and everything has been within this COVID time yeah. and obviously um, you know you're, you've been pretty close to that haven't you yeah. and what that's meant is that um, well lack of lack of society into you know, therefore you lack of um, friends being able to come round, family being able to come round and that support. And so often mums have been on their own f whole days if, if their partners have been at work, um, which some of them have obviously, whole days, week on, week out um, with nobody else to interact with. And it's been quite interesting because we've, we've recently had quite a few parents who towards the end of the first year are now really getting worried about their baby's development and saying things like, oh, they're not, they're not waving, they're not doing these social skills. And you just think, well, they wouldn't, when would they ever seen anybody wave to them? You know, I've, got, I've got that with my son because um, yeah. I, was, I was like, who would he wave to? I, I, I don't wave to him, so. No, no. of course, of course yeah. you don't. No, you don't. So, so those usual social interaction pieces, and if you think that usually you'd have been out with your babies in the supermarkets and, and those sort of places and people would come up to you, and of course, if you have a baby, then people are really, you know, are really excited to see you know sort of <laughs> older grannies come and start peering at your baby and and talking to you and talking to your baby and of course none of that has happened mm. and that's quite a different um early life experience um from a social point of view and a, that social interaction than we would have had typically mm. and so i think that um we've certainly have parents who are just worried because they've not seen other babies so they don't know is this typical or isn't it because i've got nothing to judge it by mm. um, so it's been a lonely it's been a lonely experience for many many families and that's creates anxiety and worry mm. when we're worried and anxious of course those worry beads get going in our head don't they and we can't we can escalate things and somewhat catastrophize as well and so that becomes an added challenge completely so do you do you get people asking you about what what will the long-term impacts of this situation now be on my kid if they've not had that normal kind of social interaction do you get that question a lot um i we haven't i haven't actually particularly had that no i think people are more more seem to have been more worried in the here and now because okay. is, this, is this typical right now yeah. um or i mean they definitely have worries about how will my child develop with absolutely for sure and you are asked things like will they walk will they talk will they do these sort of things but actually um i haven't been asked that particular one <laughs> about whether this will have an impact um i think they're worried that they're not getting the the therapy that they think that the child would would benefit from right yeah it's, it's I, a concern. yeah i guess we get asked we get asked a lot and it's a topic that comes up a lot about milestones um, and worry around milestones. So um, I know that there is um, a lot of anxiety about whether, whether your child is meeting the correct milestones. When are you supposed to worry and kind of comparing to other children, yeah. either, uh, I guess, if you've had a, a baby prematurely comparing to a baby at term or even to other premature babies um so i guess that was one of the questions that we got from our community was kind of saying at what point do you start to worry or should you start to think about worrying it was um an interesting one because i had another mother ask something something similar but her main concern was because she hadn't been going to any of the baby massage groups or baby yoga groups or baby sensory groups and all this sort of stuff and my feeling was, you know, those groups are beautiful, but they tend to be really for your parents' mental health and well-being. They're never really for your baby's development. I mean, they're not, they're not really. They're, they're more a social gathering and a peer support. So they, give, they fill a cup, but I wouldn't say that they're going to impact on, on your milestones. Like, we know that the single biggest influence on your milestones and your, your neurodevelopmental outcomes are your parents. Mm -hmm. And so 
you, your parents is your number one toy. That is all you really need in life. And so it's knowing that you are enough. But um, when it comes to looking at milestones, you know, if you're born early, you are like the queen and you have your two birthdays, the day you're born and the day you were due. <laughs> and we, we correct it. And um, we correct it in the hospitals for two years, but there's a big push to correct it for the first four years. Um, and so, you know, that needs to be looked at as well. But milestones is such, it's, it's huge. There's such a wide benchmark as well of what is typical and what is normal. Mm. And so it's really hard. And when you've got... Um, benchmarks to compare it off as well so when I mean if you were at all worried then you I mean there is it's always you can always reach out to I guess to your to your OTs your physios your your GP but um but knowing that there is such a wide benchmark of what is typical yeah how about I don't know if I've answered or helped at all there. No, and I, do you know I think that that's that's right and you know the thing that we keep saying is like you know think about what you you've been through what your baby's been through like how can you compare your baby to someone who hasn't been through what what they've been through um so but, but we do compare because that's what we do as humans don't we yes <laughs> definitely yeah I think the it's interesting how many parents that we see where they are um we have to still remind them don't forget when your baby's due date was who are who are really um worrying about you know in comparison to their birth date and um it's quite it's quite interesting that there is this real um this birth date is is absolutely you know of course <laughs> in your brain as to when your baby was born of course but it still seems to um take some families a lot to keep being reminded you know don't forget they you know conception is where our lives start mm -hmm. um, and we you know okay you, your baby arrived early but actually this is it's not going to have speeded up anything you're still you know your your due date is is where you where you need to keep thinking where your baby would be mm -hmm. i think um to emily's point as well is that if you are worried ask because if we don't then what happens is it goes round and round doesn't it you know ask ask anybody you can find to that you know is obviously got some understanding and experience is um, the thing to do rather than just sit and worry about it at home but I know that's not always easy to find but but usually if you can speak to your health visitor um, your GP that's health visitors are great um, you know at, at reassuring um, yeah. reassuring families mm. yeah. a lot of um, obviously NICU babies as well will still be under neonatologists and things and you've got contact to to them as well I think Frankie, we said, didn't we, at Arlo and Margot's first birthdays, we were still looking at them thinking, they don't look like the other one-year-olds, they're not doing that kind of stuff. And even though you spend your life, when someone asks how old your baby is, you, you give them, they wish they'd never asked, basically. <laughs> but still, when they get to their birthdays, you're like, but they don't seem like, and it's like, obviously not, it's quite a large chunk of their life that they've had less than... Than a, than a typical one-year-old as a percentage it's huge it's huge as yeah a it is yeah lifespan span and if you think with um you know your your typical um child if you think about just walking you know your typical your your children will start to take steps some as early as nine months nine stroke ten months right through to 16 months would be considered okay, you know, within typical. And that's, that's a huge proportion of a lifespan where it's, it's, it's typical to learn to walk. Um, so yeah, it, it's just not to, to worry too much um, about it if you can, but I, of course we all do. Yeah. And I guess it's trying to unpick what of it is an actual proper cause for concern and what is it just tangled up in your general anxiety about the whole situation anyway so um I guess people would go if it, if it actually felt that they were probably worried but it, for some it just might be a niggling feeling in the back of their head that was just a, an anxiety feeling anyway but if it is a worry to you then it is a worry to you, yeah. you know, it, does, <laughs> it is what it is you isn't it so it's worth chatting to someone if you can definitely so I, I'd like to know a little bit about what you particularly like about your roles Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. So, um, 
Gosh, there's different things at different times I like about my job. I, I, I love the team that I, I work with. I love that we are really supportive and kind and considerate to what different skill sets we bring. But I'm just thinking back to this story the other day. There was a daddy that came in the unit and his baby had been born at 26 weeks and he was just looking and looking and like just so proud, but so terrified. And I got to be the person who helped him just do a little hand hug for the first time and hold his boy. And it was just like the nicest thing in the world, like totally filled my cup because he was just so happy and so proud. Mm -hmm. And so it's moments like that, that you go like, God, this is the best job in the world. Mm -hmm. And so if you can like just give, um, have create a moment for a parent to be a parent and just have love and joy and happiness in a bonkers, stressful, traumatic environment, then you're winning at life. So that that's probably what I enjoy the most. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. And Lindsay? Yeah. And mine's probably not so dissimilar, actually, in a way. It's, um, I think the best I enjoy the most is, um, is, is chatting with the parents, them feeling like they can share their story. Um, you know, I'm fortunate. I work for a charity, so we're probably a bit more fortunate around time. So having the time to really sit and, and listen, albeit on the fire screen at the moment, but to be able to listen and, um, you know, just to be able to hear what their concerns are. Often, um, especially early on, there's huge, huge anxiety. And um, so we talk a lot about how, um, how the biggest help to the baby is going to be if they can be they can feel calmer and less anxious. And we talk a little bit about that, about why that's um, helpful in terms of the, the behaviours that we give off, the tension that we hold in ourselves, the, the hormones that we give off, the smells we give off are all changed when we're, we're anxious and we're stressed. And how if we can calm ourselves and just take our worries. And I suggest, you know, to them, even if you just for, a, could you, do you think you could do it for a few minutes a day really just take your worries and put them to one side put them in a box or fold them up and then spend that time just with your baby just stop that mind going and just see how does that feel and how do you enjoy and it's um the other thing that i often say will be look we're gonna i'm gonna come and we'll chat again in a week or two weeks whatever's appropriate and i i want you to be feel that for those that week or so you can stop worrying we will pick all the worries up again <laughs> um that you that you feel you've still got that's fine but just having that time just you know i'm sort of it's like giving permission really that it's going to be okay it's going to be okay and i think that the nicest thing is at the end often then when we pick up it's the difference the mum said oh like one mum said you know that her baby wouldn't really smile at her it would smile at her the dad but not at her and it was because she was so stressed bless her the whole time mm. but um that actually when we came back then she was saying how much she you know the baby was now smiling at her and she felt like she was um you know really enjoying the baby rather than totally being stressed so I think I that's a bit that I feel that that fills my cup if you like is that I feel like gosh if all I've done is help these parents to calm and just enjoy their baby a bit that's um feels like a feels like a helpful thing to have done yeah like what a gift to be able to give someone as well um yeah kind of sense of calm and um connection I guess yeah. connection so, great words yeah. yeah that's lovely okay so so you both have got your kind of your full-time roles that, that you're doing at the moment and yet then you both decided to set up sensory babies so <laughs> what made you come to that so, so Sensory Babies was kind of, um, Lindsay and I were, were sitting, having a cup of coffee, and we were just discussing like, like the education that we would like, <laughs> that we would like to have had. And it's all of the, the courses, the theories, the things that we hold close, um, and the books that we've read, that, and the experiences we've had just put together, <laughs> so that we know like how important the first thousand and one days are. And we wanted, we started out for this course for occupational therapists. That was, that was where it, wrote, it started. And it's just grown massively so that now we've had doctors, nurses, psychologists, psychotherapists, and with yoga teachers, swimming teachers, like just, I mean, it's been quite 
diverse who's come on it, but just to have a look at, at you know, from, from brain development and the neurobiology and then your sensory systems. Like we really hold our sensory systems close to us and the impact they have on your, not just your development, but your emotional well-being and how you feel and how you regulate. And so to understand like development and your regulation, you need to really understand sensory development. You need to understand each sensory system so that you can create the right environment for the infant, the family and the staff you're working with. So the course, um, we, it takes you through um, an introduction of what, um, why sensory processing is so important. And then we look at neurobiology and you go back to school and learn all about your brain development and neurons, which is Lindsay's speciality. <laughs> and then we learn each about our sensory systems and we look at it in terms of development, but also how we use it to discriminate, how we use it to protect, how we use to regulate. And then we move on to, to stress and what happens to our neurobiology when we with flood a nervous system with cortisol, both for the, the parent, but also for the developing fetus, but also for the infant, because it's, it's huge. And I think that trauma trauma informed care piece, we need to really start to embrace a little bit more, particularly for, for you know, neonatal care experience. Then we move on to the neonatal unit and we look at the sensory environment and sensory um, activities to really provide preventative care so that we're not picking these children up like when they're five or six, that, but we've really made sure that we've matched the environment to, to match the womb as best as possible. Um, and then we look at um, neurodevelopment and we look at different quality improvement projects you could do in the neonatal unit. And then we move on to the mother infant piece. Lindsay, stop me if I'm missing important things out. And we look at um, attachment and attunement. Uh, oh, we look at baby behavior. We look at how um, looking at baby's cues and when they're feeling comfortable and when they're feeling really, um, you know, oversensitive. And we look at baby occupations. So we look at baby massage, baby wearing, um, eating, sleep. And then we move on, we've caught, we put the models in. So I don't know if you've seen our models. So we have like the, the womb space and then we have the mother infant space and then the father infant space. And it doesn't have to be a mother or father. It's whoever really takes those specific roles on. Yeah. But for our brains, we were just trying to keep it clear like that. So once we've done the mother infant space, then we move on to the father infant space. So that's really from one to two and how your whole sensory experiences and occupations change much more in that sort of more rough and tumble phase and where you're experiencing life a little bit more. And then we look at therapeutic use of self. So, um, yeah, it's basically, it's every course Lindsay and I have ever been on filled <laughs> with a whole lot of clinical experience. And, um, and we have like, when we did it live, we'd always have like this sort of end up with this leaderboard of, of people that we really admired along the way. Most of them seem to be old men. I don't know why, but <laughs> those great, great theories. Lindsay, have I missed anything really important out there? It's very so it's um yeah so it's 20 27 modules we used see we basically we started doing it and then we we're not business people we're not entrepreneurs we are we have been winging it and it's just it it just went from word of mouth and so we have had the most amazing experience to have been to greece poland peru chile argentina brazil india dubai and then wow. and then COVID happened i know it was amazing and honestly lindsay and i would go off and do nhs and charity and then we'd get on a plane to to india or get on a plane <laughs> to argentina and we'd get there and go like i don't know how we've done this how the <laughs> but we are and it was amazing we've just met the most amazing people but then obviously covid happened and we were like oh that puts a stop to that game a little bit and so we we moved it online and so we so we yeah you can do the course online now and actually well, yeah we've had an amazing response from it so, um, you have to take it offline again so that you can travel again I know, <laughs> I know. well I know and then we decided you know what we're only going to go to the countries that we really really want to go to so we were naming these really random places like Lindsay wants to go to Greenland I don't know if anyone's <laughs> yeah, of course not available online in Greenland <laughs> okay, <exactly. laughs> oh, wow. that's amazing that's incredible so I mean one of the things that I picked up when you were talking there, so you were talking about a thousand and one days. So that feels very specific. So, so it was a government initiative. Actually, Lindsay, you can do this one. <laughs> <laughs> 
So um, when they talk about thousand and one days, it's that's from conception okay. um, through to basically the age of two. And um, yeah, there was um, probably about five years ago now or so, there was um, a realization that in Britain we needed to do better by supporting babies in utero, so from conception and through to these first two years. And that's because our brain goes through such massive development in that phase. It's um, a pretty crucial, it's, it sort of lays the foundation block for our future brain development, basically. And so it would seem logical that you really nurture that phase and um, support it to the best that you possibly can because your mm -hmm. brain is going to go grow to 80% of its adult size by the time you're three. Um, and you know, your body's not going to do anything like that. If you imagine, um, it's got, your body's got a long way to go, but your brain is really laying down its foundation blocks in those early phases. Mm. And so we want to support it. And what we know is that, um, you know, mums having good, um, nutrition and being cared for during pregnancy is obviously important that there is, you know, not, no, um, drug, you know, drug use that can be harmful um that the mother actually really does need to be viewed as um someone who's carrying you know really important little being and their development and that's that's really important the mother gets supported and um then once the baby is born that the mother is continues to be supported um in order to a, be able to feed but also be able to care for that baby and that we we're very very demanding human humans are hugely demanding we can't survive on our own we can't survive on our own for many many years and so that takes real intentional parent parenting to do that and it's it's all encompassing it's it's mm -hmm. just hugely demanding um on the on the mother in particular and so it's about supporting the mother and therefore the baby and seeing them as a unit is really important in that rather than seeing them which which of course is what we've moved to on the neonatal ward um wards noticing that actually parents are part of this unit it's not like it's somebody um visiting from outside but also in those early phases as well um of, of supporting the parents so they've the, there was a cross-party um agreement which is pretty amazing it doesn't happen very often does it in, in, in government um that there needed to be this um push to support um babies and and parents during this phase and so they came up with this phrase of a thousand and one critical days and so now there's a there's a found um i don't know if it's called a foundation actually but anyway there's a group um that's called the thousand and one um days and yeah it has quite a lot of backing now by various um cross-party groups um charities and others who actually um form a committee if you like or a group that sort of um had quite a driving force in this area so if you if you take into consideration that um the majority of um the people who will listen to this have had either premature or at uh, time babies who have been poorly in kind of neonatal unit if they're thinking about like what what do I need to be aware of when I'm thinking about kind of sensory based issues thinking about um and I, I know like every child is going to be different so this might be difficult to ask uh, kind of answer but what kind of things do they do we need to be kind of aware of are there like more specific things that we need to be doing in that way I think if you're on the neonatal unit mm -hmm. I think the the biggest thing is um, is skin to skin and hand hugs. The biggest thing is is trying to get back on your parents' body, and it's it's not a fluffy extra, but it's got to be a peaceful, calm experience for the parent. Like it's never going to work if you just go, "Can I hold my baby now?" And someone just flips strips and passes the baby, all screaming and shouting because they're just going to desat left, right, and centre, and then the parent's going to be like, "Oh my god, they you know it's too traumatic." Mm -hmm. So you've really got to think about the sensory environment the parents' well-being and a safe skin-to-skin -skin transfer to make it a really beautiful, loving experience that will help with brain growth. So it's it's really like, for the parents, know that you are the answer. You, you smell right, you sound right, you touch right, you feel right. And if there were any staff watching, it, you've got to think about the sensory environment because if there's like chaos happening on the unit, you've got to think of how that's going to impact on that little person coming out. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, and then the other really big thing I would say is the sense of movement. So movement is probably one of the senses we've messed up the most. So if you think when you're pregnant, you when you're walking along, the baby feels movement, but has no gravity at all. And when you're born early, we suddenly go, oh, static and a bucket load of gravity mm. and movement is so important for our posture to develop for our motor eye skills to develop but also for how we feel so what i try and do is when the babies are, are medically stable or maybe like 32 weeks and up is when the parents are holding them to try and start introducing a little bit of movement mm -hmm. so i was really fortunate to go to a unit in norway and they, they walk on their unit and they have a mannequin straight away with a doll, um, with a big sort of stretchy wrap. So the parents know that that's what's expected of them as soon as they're medically stable, that you wear them and you walk around the unit. And they have like beautiful fjords to look at and lovely Norwegian food. So it's a different experience from like inner city London, which is sort of chaos. But even if you can just do a little bit of dancing, that movement is important. Mm. So I know these are kind of preventative things and if you're you're home you've you've, you've moved on but the, but learning about movement and learning about regulation on your parents is is that is how we learn about who we are so doing all the the baby the, the you know the baby wearing the movement the tiger in the tree those sort of sensory experiences we, we've done them for a million years for a reason it's how your neurobiology is wired but I think Lindsay you've probably got some more tips <laughs> and that was just really interesting what you said just then because in my neonatal unit I was told I wasn't allowed to walk so uh... yes. now Frankie you're fine for some reason in the NHS we believe every mother will drop their child yeah and I was like <laughs> I'm going to be going home in a week I'm going to be walking around with a child <laughs> what we'd rather you do is put your baby in a cot and rattle them along the place rather than hold them yeah it's something I'm working on but um yeah it's a it's a it's, a, it's an NHS problem we just we don't trust you I don't know why it's terrible because movement and being on it and you are literally taking it is the most precious thing you've ever created mm. <laughs> so I the likelihood of you dropping and okay and if you do if we are worried about dropping then we should be using baby wraps and, and making sure that the babies are secure mm. would make more sense yes I, it's a battle I haven't won yet mm. <laughs> I'm also worried I'm gonna drop Margot I'm still worried <laughs> <laughs> You always do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so in when the, when babies are home, it's the same sort of principles. Really, is mm -hmm. that again? Is that you are the you are the best toy, the best scaffold, the best plaything your babies can possibly have. Um, what it, what's interesting is that many parents, when they're in the neonatal unit, would have been doing skin to skin. But then as soon as they leave, they don't think that's what they do anymore. Um, it's like that's that was something I did there. And so um, telling, you know, suggesting to parents that they continue to do that or if they haven't done it for some reason to do that, to keep going with that is really good. Um, so that tactile input, um, baby massage, doing um, th those sort of activities with the babies is really um, lovely. And of course, you can do it, you know, when the babies come out of the bath or before they go to bed whatever's going to work for you you've got much more autonomy about what you can work out will work in your in your day um the baby wearing the same you know it, it just the same if you can um if the if mum if mum struggles then you know dad or if there's someone else around um you know another adult around um or a, a teenage teenager that's sort of old enough to be able to do that um having the babies on you when you're sat watching the tv or just whatever it is you're doing again um is really helpful so the movement the same so dancing around the kitchen with your baby um moving them into different positions in your arms is really lovely the tactile piece talking to your babies um you know your voice again we are neurologically designed as babies to hear human voice that's what we're really um focused on but what we want is a human voice that is um able to become attuned to what we need as a baby not just a human voice on the television or the radio that's just 
giving it this. Mm. We want to be able to um, observe our babies and use our voices um, accordingly. And to, when we when we talk to our babies, we we our voices go up and we prolong words and we say them over again and we make them more dramatic and we change our faces. We our eyes get bigger. We we get pr more pronounced with our mouths. And so what our babies are doing is listening to that and watching faces and seeing the expressions and then you can copy the expressions and this is how we learn to be a little a human is by watching our parents our parents are our first mirror if you like um on the world and so that's that's why it's so important that as as parents we spend that time with our babies as much as possible because you are the best toy and the best um thing there is out there for them mm. so yeah those cuddles and chat and talk anything at them it doesn't matter i say to parents you know if you want you can read the paper <laughs> <laughs> Just, um, but listening to those human voices is is, is so important mm. they really encouraged reading to um on our on our neonatal unit it just felt it sometimes felt really embarrassing though yeah. i thought yeah you know a lot of parents say that um i don't know if you've ever read um that juniper the book juniper written i can't remember the um journalist it's an american book it's about her her neonatal journey it's a beautiful brilliant book but she um she read harry potter from basically one to whatever <laughs> and um because she also felt like the books because we give everyone um guess how much i love you but the parents like i've read it once do i have to keep reading it over <laughs> and over and so it is you know harry potter what game of thrones whatever you want just they need to hear your voice and, and that's because there was a piece of research that came out of America a few years ago, which compared the use of private rooms with the open bays. Um, and the, 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 the idea was, was that the private rooms would offer better infection control rates, but also better sensory environment, that you wouldn't be in this chaotic, noisy environment. But they followed the babies for two years. And what they found was that the ones that were nursed in the private rooms, there was a significant delay in their language. And that's because they hadn't changed any of the parental access. And so they were being nursed in isolation. So you're, you're always meant to have your parents there. But since that piece of research came out, there's a big push about auditory development. Mm. We are meant to be really quiet on the neonatal unit. It is meant to be just be the parents speaking. We're meant to be library voice or church voice. Mm. And if we can't work that out, we're not meant to speak. But sometimes you'll find <laughs> It doesn't work at all but yeah they need to hear parents voice because mm. i think even when you're doing skin to skin as well you're chatting to the mum maybe in the next yeah. cot or whatever and yeah they, they just hear you by default then as well don't they so yeah. and i think music is a really other really lovely thing and that's and we were talking about covid before we used to have um a musician come on our neonatal unit to do the lullaby hour and it was one of the favorite things of my job because she would be able to she's got the most beautiful voice in the world but she would play these lullabies and i'd got to do little baby observations to make sure that everyone was really stable and co-regulated and then COVID happened and everyone got banned, but we, um, we have massager melodies online now. So that's worked really nicely. So some things we've worked out. Mm. <laughs> Sounds lovely. Singing to your babies, they don't mind what your voice is like. No. <laughs> Singing is, re is really good. Um, the rhythm and, and the cadence of when we sing is very in keeping with our brainwave levels. Um, some of our brainwaves and so um, you know all over the planet people will parents will sing at the same rhythm mm. um, uh, because it matches that and helps to to regulate helps us to calm down mm. as well so yeah singing it's amazing how kind of innate that feeling is to sing as well I'm not a singer um, I just I don't sing but when you have your ba a baby on your chest that kind of instinct to start humming or singing mm -hmm. or you know it just comes doesn't it yeah mm. greg's a terrible singer but it really overtook him on 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 the unit he would sit there singing my girl to margo <laughs> it's very cute <laughs> one person asked about the kind of use of lighting so she was talking about her um, her baby now and she had kind of read somewhere about the use of lighting and whether there was anything that she could kind of do with regards to like coloured lights or anything like that that could kind of support people with that. That's an interesting question that I'm not sure if, um, if how helpful we're going to be on that but um, 
so you know we when we're in the womb um really the light is pretty pretty minimal and actually our visual system doesn't really probably pick up light until quite late on so if 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 you or any of your parents listening had their babies quite early especially before sort of 32 weeks or so you probably had coverings um to stop the light coming in because that's a, a time when it can be more um can be overwhelming for the for the um, delicate state of the the visual nervous system at that time so um so what we as we get towards term then you do want some daylight coming in because even in the womb you would start to get the sense of day and night in terms of light and light is what is going to um is what we've used for all our um, existence on the planet to help us with our circadian rhythms. So the rhythms that will take us through day and night. And we have hormones that we produce in the night that if, if we have light, they're not going to be produced so much, for example. So um, light is pretty fundamental to us in, in many, many ways. Um, so in terms of different colored light, so the thinking is that um, early on in, uh, when we're born is that generally what we see is more blacks and whites, a bit like we would see at night when we're um, you know, older. If you go out in the evening and it's quite, um, the light's flat, if you like, all you can really see is black and white and gray, isn't it? Um, so the thinking is that that's fairly much what we see a lot of, although now we're also thinking that actually colors like red are more are more being picked up by the babies as well but in terms of um probably the biggest thing really is about trying to get into a rhythm around light which will support sleep um you, it's going to take until you're about four or five for your sleep rhythms to really get sorted mm -hmm. but having um you know helping to create a day and night rhythm in terms of light is is helpful of course we have electricity now that's thrown that all somewhat out of the window but thinking how you can organize you know the use of electric lights in your house for example might might be something to think about if if light sensitive is an issue we're very driven by vision as a species it's we're highly highly sensitive to it which is why we can sit for so long in front of a screen um, because the vision and um, especially when it's moving um, visual stimulus we can sit for hours mm -hmm. and that's because it is so stimulating for us so um in terms of particular types of light or colors of light, I don't know. There's some research that suggests that green is actually calming to us and that we, we've, uh, which sort of wouldn't be surprising in a way, would it? But um, so in terms of, I don't know if I've helped there or not really. Definitely, no, I think that's that's really helpful. Thank you, I appreciate it. I will just say as well with the, um, um, with the, the black and white, um, images you know that that is that theory that we we are more drawn to the black and white but there is no developmental value to the black and white images it is always the parents face and voice that is the number one toy and it goes to what Lindsay was saying like the we, I had one mum come and see me a, a while back and she had an app on her phone with revolving black and white images and she was saying you know how much her little person liked it but he was like I think he was pretty overstimulated, but couldn't quite break, break away from it. And so um, I just think it's important that, you know, vision, it, it's, it's parents, parents face and voice. Yeah. And you know what, I think what you've, you've said quite a lot within this is that, you know, there's so much about the parents. So it's about the unit, isn't it? In terms of, um, you know, that kind of engagement and attachment and all that kind of thing, which in one way is quite a relief having gone through covid and it has just been <laughs> me uh, yeah. like with georgie as well so in in a way it is that that's quite nice but in a way that also to me it's like oh it's just me <laughs> that's quite scary yeah when you were saying it i was like but what if what if i haven't been doing enough <laughs> that's i've messed her up <laughs> no, that's the rest of your life you're gonna think yeah. about that that's all of us that's all of us that's what my mum says yeah <laughs> <laughs> gonna go away but i do think like you know the uk like well not just the uk western cultures we like we like gadgets and we like to buy and we want more and more and actually what Lindsay always says in our courses like our neurobiology has been wired for a long long time without a whole lot of gadgets and toys like it's a new thing we've introduced we don't need it mm -hmm. you know it's social interaction your parents are enough frankie and i have a standing joke that, um that we need a tough tray 
and we feel like we're the only people without one of those big black tough trays doing sensory activities. And they weren't around when, our, when we had little kids. God knows how our children are surviving. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I had one. I'm all right. <laughs> no, I know. They're really the in thing. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So I don't need one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the game is in terms of toys and things is, well, obviously you um, and um, your, your family members are vital, but also just things around the house, you know, things like wooden spoons and, and um, saucepans and, you know, things that you can bang on something and have a cause and effect or you can play with, you know, when they get a little bit older, standing at the kitchen sink and just pouring things. Being in the bath is a great place to play. Your sofa, your cushion. Learn about about cause and effect, which is the early stages of play. Um, You know, it's really great places for them to play that don't require a million and one toys. That's not to say that we don't need objects because we do as humans. We are, yes, we are social. That's why we've got such big brains is for the purpose of working in groups. So um, social is is absolutely key to to what we are and what we're about. But we're also tool users. Um, that's how you know we're going to learn to write, and we're going to use bats and balls and all the other things. So objects are also part of our um, experience in life. But those objects can be leaves and um, twigs and things in the environment. They don't have to be shiny plastic, um, bright. You yeah. have to say that as well a little bit. You know, there is a you know, a bit of a drive with the whole um, sensory toys that you need. And for one little person, they might be the best thing in the world. But for someone who's a little bit overwhelmed or overloaded by sensory input, like having the space blanket and the feathers and the bubbles, it's going to send them into shutdown. So, you know, you that's the, the big thing. It is all about reading baby behavior so that we don't overwhelm the little nervous system. Mm. sometimes sometimes we compare notes and we're like oh what's Arlo playing with right now what's Margot playing with right now and I think my response yesterday was a loaf tin and a plastic fork (laughs) (laughs) so get your loaf tins out (laughs) and you know me and Georgie we've got um babies they're a month apart but in terms of the difference between them they're born you know same weight same gestation completely different though aren't they in terms of temperament and all that kind of thing I guess Margot is um, very active, likes to explore everything. <laughs> Doesn't she? Very She rare. is a climber. She yeah. would climb the curtains if I let her, I think. Um, whereas, whereas Arlo is a lot more observant. Um, and, and like you were kind of saying, if I came at him with a space blanket and feathers and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff, he would just go, I don't know what to do with this. So I have to go really slow with him. Yeah. Just kind of yes. things That's like, like Lindsay. Yeah, yeah, just come slowly at me. Um, that's um, but what's great is that you know your babies and you are attuned to them. You you get what it is that helps them to be in the place that they want to be, and and you're you're along there with them and you're holding their hands if you like. You're alongside them with that, which is which is brilliant. I mean, that's all we can, you know, that's the best that we can do is to be able to help to read. We're not always going to get it right. <laughs> read the cues that our, that our babies are giving us and help them to be undertaking the things that, that, that interests them. And as, as, a, as a race, as a, as a group, we need all sorts. That's, what, that's our strength as well, is that we actually are all so very different and bring so many different things to the party. If we were all the same, we wouldn't have built houses and aeroplanes and everything else. We need um, different types of brains. And that's our skill as a, as a species is the fact that we have that ability to not just be genetically coded, but really interact with our environments and build a brain um, accordingly. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think there's, that's really important to keep in your mind, isn't it? Because, and I guess the thing is, is with social media is you can so readily compare your baby to another baby. So, uh, you know, if I was just comparing um, Arlo to Margot, they're just, they're just so polar opposite. Into, there's no point <laughs> in comparing them in that kind of way. Um, but I think it's, and it's really easy to, um, this isn't a word, problematize. <laughs> <laughs> um, word. You like it, it is now <laughs> but it's really easy to kind of go mm, is there something wrong with my kid because they're not 
reacting in the same way to, to another kid that you're seeing on social media for example I mean yeah. we had this exact conversation yesterday Frankie didn't we yeah. where you were saying oh Arlo got a bit overwhelmed at the park because another kid came in and I and you were worried that he was going to be shy and I said well but it does take all sorts and that's fine it's just they'll people will have different temperaments otherwise life wouldn't be life like you say mm. It is lovely once you start looking at um, sensory development and sensory environment and just analysing your entire family and just understanding why they've <laughs> behaved in a certain way. Yeah, we all process sensory information differently and some of us are going to be the, the roller coaster riders and some of us are going to hold the coats. <laughs> <laughs> Margot and Arlo will be the perfect combination at the park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. One of the things I often say to parents is that, you know, when you're on an aeroplane, if they're talking about giving oxygen, you know, if, if anything happens, we need to put oxygen masks on, then they'll say to you, you know, if you're caring for a child, you need to put your oxygen mask on first before you then deal with the, with the child. And I think it's a good analogy because the, the best help we can be to our children is be in the best place that we can be. Mm-hmm. That's easy to say. And it's not so easy to do, but if we could recognize that where where we are is going to have a huge impact on the children and that it's okay to, to take time to look after yourself and give yourself a bit of a break. And that's been hard in this time in particular because people have been on their own and it's not, you know, we weren't designed to be just one parent with one child or two children just for long, long periods of time. So it's been tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want that adult communication and everything, and that's fine. So I think it's about as much as possible taking away the guilt that actually you don't have to be totally child focused all the time. You do need to focus on yourself and your partner and and that relationship as well. Um, because if those things are going okay, then you will be in a best place to have the, the capacity to look after your, your child children. Mm completely yeah that's so important it is and I think there's you know a lot of people have said that their use of like mobile phones has gone up um and I guess that's what we're craving we're craving that connection aren't we and that kind of of dopamine hit you get when you're kind of scrolling on social media and all that kind of stuff but actually kind of being a bit kind to yourself of going well that's why I'm doing this um and it's okay if I do that but then having those moments where you're then with your kid and you're giving them their kind of attention it's kind of it's okay to sit there and kind of scroll for a little while, put a screen on, that's fine. What you need to do to be able to look after yourself and yeah. then do the kind of connecting part. Yeah, the connecting part is, is, is absolutely you're right. It's so important. And that means you, you then have, you do perhaps have to put your phone down yeah. and, and really just be prepared to be in the moment, be in the present with your yeah. children. Um, try and put those worries away about what's happening in the future, or what's happened in the past. And those times will be the times when you can be um, the most attuned and, and interactive with your children as if you can be in that moment with them. Yeah. You can't do it all the time. No, you can't do it all the time. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> I guess I do, I, I, I do it in, in kind of like snacks. So I notice myself. So if I've been like on my phone for a long time or I just, I notice that I've kind of slowed out a little bit, then I just go, okay, deep breath. And then we're going to go and just be completely present. And you get joy out of that, don't you? When you're actually completely present in that way. So yeah, that's lovely. Okay. So I'm, I'm now wondering, we kind of end the podcast in, in a way where we generally ask whether you've got any advice. Um, for, um, advice? Well, yeah. Do you know what? Just to know that, that you are enough. But that, that, that for whatever stage your baby is born at and for wherever you are, you are enough. And so, and, and also it is all about co-regulation, as Lindsay said before. So you can't fill from an empty cup. So you've got to be able to look after yourself. Mm. Yeah. Lindsay, pearls of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've probably said it, haven't we, in a way. Um, yeah, I think um, any pearls of wisdom... I think, yeah, exactly as Emily says, you know, that you know that you are enough, that your baby loves you no matter what, you're singing and all. (laughs) (laughs) And and make the most of that if you can, you know, enjoy that because as Emily and I know... You know how it's going to watch the teenage years. When they get all over them now. 
yeah. <laughs> getting to teenagers is a whole different ball game. Um, so really oh, enjoy this bit <laughs> because they love you to bits. Um, you know, that's all they know. You are the most important thing ever in their, in your, in their lives. And if you, um, you know, can enjoy that and not worry too much, you know, it comes with being a parent, worry. <laughs> But if you can have moments, we just just enjoy, then that would be great. And we, we've been around a long time, you know, millions of years. You know, we, we've only recently been in the type of world we live in now. And, and we survived and we did very well. So um, just, yeah. Lindsay, I thought yeah, you, you and me had been around a long time. I, I was going to say, you don't look that old. <laughs> very kind. We'll come again. <laughs> Well, it's been really, really lovely to have you on. I've really appreciated it, really enjoyed the chat. Oh, so, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah it's been fab. And so nice that we've been able to connect through Instagram. Instagram so, uh, Yay, there you go. See, we are getting the hang of Instagram. <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much for having us. So, yeah, we've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Miracle Moon podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. You can also find us on Instagram at Miracle Moon UK, Facebook Miracle Moon UK and our website www.miraclemoon.co.uk. We've also recently started a closed community on Facebook for NICU parents to connect and share experiences in a safe environment. You can access this via all our channels or message us for more information if you'd like to join. Please get in touch if you'd like to contribute to our Instagram blog or podcast. And remember to like, rate, share and subscribe. It helps us to reach NICU parents and to help them feel less alone.